they're bad, they're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts, Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Bye 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 do you know what? We could record a, so many podcasts that way. Imagine if we used that to record, yeah, you know, what's it called? 23 podcasts. And how bad they'd be at that 23rd <laughs> one. Because we'd run out of stuff. We'd really be dread, like the dregs of what we could talk yeah, about. We're not out. It's when, it's like when Chris Moyles did a, a 48 hour uh, radio show or something or similar that no one wanted. <laughs> I tell you what. I tell you what we should do. Have you seen um, uh, Drunk History? Yes, love it. Such a we good. Should do, we should do. We should do Drunk Running Clinic, where we just yes. drink a lot and um, we give out running advice. And I, I used to know the girl who um, looked after the 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 celebs on on that show. Well, she didn't do a very good job. They all got drunk. <laughs> Yeah, whatever you do, don't don't let them leave the building. Don't. But yes, yeah, she's. What do you mean looked after? What did she make sure they didn't throw up or something? What was that? What the is that? What well, the remit is? Uh, because you, if you, she was, I can't. I think she's a researcher, but that was her role to go and get drunk with them, because the producer. It's not as if the producer and the director would all go down the pub with them in advance. So they'd go out there, and the, the good thing is. And a lot of shows like this, especially especially now, you'd suspect that a show like Drunk History, people would be pretending more yeah. reality because you just wouldn't think that health and safety or even BBC policy or Comedy Central policy or you know, insurance would allow yeah. an organisation to actually get someone drunk as the remit. But yeah. They really did, and these people were absolutely bladdered. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's um, let's. That would be a great idea. Perfect. There we go. So, if I mean to be fair, our advice drunk is probably better than most advice you're going to get in the BBR Facebook group. Anyway, it's true. Yeah, you want to hit the hard, the hard truth from us. That's the way to get it. Well, talking about <laughs> talking about being drunk, that actually segues into. Um, a recent weekend, Corona weekend I had, started off with a Steve Cram quiz. Whoa, what's the Steve Cram quiz like? It, um, it was, it was all right, actually. You would say, what are you going to say before it was all right, actually? We'd, well, we tried to do a do better takeover and it actually, there, you could get in because there weren't enough places. Oh, uh, okay. But, there's a there's an issue with having an online quiz is that everyone can cheat <laughs> so they clearly put a few questions in 
where so one of the questions was what uh, why was the number 652 relevant to uh like a 2010 record um and it turned out it was for a girl had counted that many worms had, had managed to get that many worms in the worm catching festival to set a new world record and so obviously anyone who got that correct uh, answer correct had cheated and three three teams had but I was my my sole intent was to cheat as much as possible to get bad boy running in the spotlight. But then sadly, it was Briggsy's Hendu the same night. So she was having a virtual Hendu in the room next door, and I was still trying to line up a stripper as a surprise for her. <laughs> and it's quite weird because I was just going oh on. Oh my it's... goodness! What? Where? How were you searching for this? How? <laughs> I, can you just get, walk me through this process, please? <laughs> well, oh, you go, is this the first time you've done this? <laughs> Step one. No. Step one. Step one. Just look at my contacts. Step one, I asked Mene. Mene. <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon you know someone <laughs> like this. What? For some reason, Mene popped into my head as going, I bet Mene would know someone. <laughs> like Mene. Um... You must know a male stripper, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, can, um, so I then contacted that guy. Fortunately, he was non-committal. <clears throat> so within, with about 45 minutes left, I was then left scrambling, trying to find a stripper last minute. Go on Instagram, start hashtagging uh, dream boys. And sure enough, there's quite a few in there. So I'm just messaging stripper after stripper. And I don't really understand that much, as you can probably tell deep balance from our our Instagram, you know, how, how you message so that you're seen. So I was following all these strippers. So since then, (laughs) since then, (laughs) it's, it's absolutely killed the search algorithm. So, (laughs) Wow, is it unenjoyable what? now? To, wow, to what are you? What are you being retargeted with on Facebook <laughs> as a result of that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we managed. I managed to find this one guy who happened to be one of. He wasn't the finalist, but he got to the penultimate stage of SAS. Are you tough enough? Who was also a fireman. Does okay. it get better than that? That's Does it get good. better than that? That's pretty good. So Briggsy's Briggsy's having this great time, um, and then we suddenly introduced this this stripper, and I stayed online just because I wanted to see how Briggsy reacted, and started recording my screen. And the great thing is, because it was on Zoom, Zoom then cuts to whoever's making the most noise. So not only is this guy who's great dancer, fair play. The guy's good at his job. He's an impressive, impressive person, should we say. Um, but then it suddenly cuts to all of my uh, fiancé's friends, all, some of them absolutely loving it, some of them blushing, some of them, and just catching all the reactions. It's just so good. So I think I'm doing well here. I then get a text saying, Dave, Dave, um, can you bring Claire some water, please? So I go back in there. Claire's in fancy dress barely able to speak 
give her a glass of water. And then later, like, Dave, where's Clay, Claire gone? You get a phone call. So I go in there. Claire's just lying on the ground. She's got two <laughs> bottles of champagne around her, an empty bottle of gin. And they've just made her do this scavenger hunt where she's decimated all this booze with no food. So I just have to carry her to bed to this, yeah, <laughs> legendary. I mean, you can't replicate a Hindu, but they did That's pretty well. That's pretty good. That's yeah. Really good. Yeah. That's not bad going. <laughs> so do banish your handy online. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, my stag do in four weeks' time. Maybe we'll have to do the same. <laughs> no, I mean not the same male stripper. <laughs> Just <to clarify. laughs> He was good. Oh, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's good that you've got all those contacts now. <laughs> yeah it is it is <laughs> you never know when that's going to come in handy i tell you what that would that would shake things up on the ultra zone next year <laughs> yeah <laughs> no front... one would expect that <laughs> just an aid station with them all in <laughs> <laughs> but uh have you seen new week Ooh, new doping scandal Oh, good. I love a good doping scandal. We should do doping scandal of the week. Well, it's just crazy now. Well, who's my... this? Who's, who, who is it now? So, Daniel Wanjiru, 2017 winner of the London Marathon. That's a big really? name, right? Yeah. It's a big name. Well, you say it's a big name. I mean, that's the first I've ever heard of him. But, yeah. <laughs> Yep. We say he won the London Marathon. Yeah, I, I'm a picture and he was a big name. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, well, yeah. I mean, it shows how ignorant we are about sport, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's. But in terms of in terms of how recent and in terms of the event he's won, that's probably number four or number five in terms of marathon running names. I'd say. Oh, really? Well, to win it, to win London. That's, if you think the last two years have been, um, <laughs> gosh, how can I not remember his name? <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Sorry, Nick. Who's ah. remember? Who's won London last two years? Have I? Of course you do. Best marathon run in the world. Kipchoge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> I couldn't remember Kipchoge. Oh. And uh, I tell you, you get this stage, everything goes to crap. Uh, right, okay, stage, sorry. You've got two bottles of fizz, a bottle of vodka and a stripper on your, on your Skype. And you're like, why can't I remember Kipchoge? Yeah, good at one thing, but sadly not memory. Um, yeah, that's the thing. that The last six, so nearly, we can edit into this bit, obviously. So, um, yeah, so that's the thing. Last year's have been won by Kipchoge. And then... Uh, Bikali, I what, think, so, was so, so what are you implying? Well, the, the, to, to have another really high-profile pro, athlete who's also Kenyan, and the, the, the issue is, well, it's just so many of them, which is just so disappointing, because you've already got Wilson Kipsang, um, who's you know former marathon world record holder, but then... If, if the only people who are quick enough to compete or even get close to 
the current top athletes are all being done for for drugs it's not to say those top athletes are doing drugs but it doesn't look good does it and no. and I, I don't think they are mainly just because i don't want to and and partly because um and Hara, i can't remember his name either right so nick what's and Hara and 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 oh i've been yeah here we go sorry banking this and also partly because of Darren and you know his view i do take as 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 carrying weight the fact he understands how the system works and he's seen how their groups work and how they're all quite separate in how they're organized and their views of them and the morals of them and so you know i I do trust that they're not but if it you know if if you look at that olympic games where all of the is it called the drug hundred but all of them are taking drugs all of them have been done for drugs ever since if you're the next guy or if you were faster than all of them and everyone behind you being done for drugs that's really not a good sign so ah, it's just it's just boring now isn't it yeah yeah it really is but what can you do well i don't know that's trouble Science is too good. Science is three years behind. That's the issue. Science is not there, so people can cheat and get away with it, but it catches them up, which means we then find out about it later. So, but I guess if you're a Kenyan athlete who is coming from poverty, you've taken the paycheck. So, totally worth it. <laughs> worth it. Doping is good. Wait, what? Is that what, what is the message here, David? What? <laughs> So, so what I'm saying is, we want to see more doping, people. <laughs> see more, exactly more doping. We need you to fill the doper of the week slot and the uh, for for BBR. Um, <laughs> I tell you what, there's a lot of um, a lot of running documentaries and stuff at the moment on Amazon Prime. Um, there is the Skid Row Marathon documentary. <gasps> if you haven't watched no. it yet. I've, I've yeah. wanted to see it for ages. Oh, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's on Amazon. There's a lo- Actually, there's a load of stuff on Amazon Prime. There's a, a Killian Journey, um, is Everest Climb um, uh, documentary is that as good? well. It, do you know what? It was quite good. Um, the, the bit where bit they're going into Killian's um, background and history and him running and then wanting to give it up and everything like that and him overachieving, mm. keep, you know, completing everything that he ever wanted to do by the time he was like 24 or something and then going into this state of depression. That was really, really interesting. I didn't really, know really about that. Yeah, I know. I didn't know about that either. I didn't know whether it's just because I didn't, don't know a huge amount of, about him. And then that whole... That's the complete um, opposite of our lives. I, I know, exactly. <laughs> Achieving nothing by the age of 40. <laughs> Achieving <laughs> everything by the age well, of 24. Well, but that's the thing so we do it so that we don't get depressed that was the that was, exactly, that was the issue. exactly. <laughs> because our future's still ahead of us not in the past oh, absolutely but um but it, but it was quite interesting like because it showed like pictures of him when he was like a kid and uh, and when you see like his mum you know he oh, there, he was quite climbing Mont Blanc when he was four and stuff like that it was, it was quite fucking insane um but but you see you know uh, you know how he kind of like grew up and, and everything else like that. But it also covers um, you know when he was doing the was it called Summits of My Life or something where he wanted to because that came after after he completed all the races that he wanted ever wanted to do uh, he wanted to do all those summits and that's when his long term climbing partner when he died um, on uh, as a result of that 
and uh, and that was quite interesting as well just the you know just listening to him talk and, and everything else and then it had the bit about Everest and that that was a bit boring um but but yeah there is and there's actually quite a few there was a there's a, a dragon dragon's back documentary not the um the hue one um uh, uh I, I think i texted you to tell you just how boring it was it was one of the most boring documentaries <laughs> i have ever seen it was so boring it was incredible <laughs> why was it because you're oh my goodness say that this was really boring given that most running documentaries are about three and a half out of ten anyway. So this was sub substandard for a running oh, documentary. Well, I was just thinking, you know, you, you, you've got like scenery and stuff. Um, and they go, oh, you know, it's not about the scenery. It's about the stories of the runners. And you're like, oh, I mean, they were all like kind of like good elite runners. And it was just they were so boring. That It was just really, really boring. It was just I, it, there, there was nothing to it. It didn't really have any kind of tension to it or something and who did and, it, it was, who did it feature who was it filming like uh, jim man uh, or someone or? Uh, i can't remember anyone was in it i think nikki was in it nikki spinks was in it um uh, but i there was a guy who'd won it before and his wife who was running it or something like that and i don't know whether you know i don't i just i don't think it was a particularly well shot documentary or anything because it was it was kind of covering it if you, it was almost covering it as though um, to help you research the route, almost rather than, <laughs> than let's tell some stories of people um, and, and like the adversity and stuff like that they're going through. That's that's kind of what it felt like. Because there's loads, but there's a load, of, but there's loads of stuff on there. There's there's um uh, there's that transcendence one on there as well about the guy who does the um the transcendence three thousand one hundred um, miles thing as well around mm. the New York block. There's just there's a but they seem to have just flooded it with a load of um, running documentaries, um, very few of which I want to watch. Because I've never thought of actually going to Amazon for documentaries because I just find that the the content there's so much paid content on there, and it's not very good at actually recommending things. So I've just never discovered anything good on there. But actually, Skid Row I've wanted to watch for ages, and yeah, that killing bunch, one does sound yeah, good. There's a bunch of stuff on there. It's quite there's um what's the name of the guy who wears the hat with the little um thing on it Luke Tabersky. yeah it's got him doing some triathlon triathlon type thing about running and swimming and stuff but not an actual triathlon it's like something he's doing it's like something. a five time triathlon is it like five times this five times that five times something that. like that yeah something like that um he's on there as well there's just, there's just a bunch of stuff on there that's um uh, some of which is, is quite good Oh, cool. I'll check that. Well, do better. Have you got any other suggestions of things you've seen? Because it, it might be, hopefully this is, if we all watch it, then hopefully that will then mean that they'll put more up because if we spread it amongst our friends and there's enough, uh, love, enough viewers, then that will encourage them to, to buy more content, make more content. Um, now, one thing I did see you share uh, oh, God. was yeah. a great post. And this is not running related at all but corona related about the security guard tim oh, at, the national, at the national cowboy museum tell us about i mean that was one of my favorite articles i've read in years i know it's incredible so basically what they said is that the national cowboy museum um they couldn't keep it open so they um they left the security guard they had to keep there because there's a lot of very um highly prized uh, memorabilia and stuff in there as well and so they said to him um that 
it would be good if you took over social media. And so maybe you know, just to keep interest up, go and take some photos of, uh, of a few things and post them on social media. And then what follows are some of the, uh, there's just something, there's something just so wonderful and wholesome in the yeah. social media. Someone it's almost, it's not even like your nan learning social media. It's just like a guy who he's just really thoughtful and he goes, yeah. Oh, you know, uh, he fight. It's just his humour is just really innocent, and he's just really caring. He goes, my grandkids told me to post this, or just go and have a look at it. If you type in um, uh, what's it called, um, cowboy security guard um, social media, it'll pop up. And some of the posts are just brilliant. He uses the term hashtag. He didn't realise hashtag was like a symbol, <laughs> and so he keeps putting the word hashtag in front of stuff. But it's not. You're not. La- you're not reading it and laughing at him because he's made mistakes. Uh, it's adorable. It, it's ju- it is adorable. It's ju- and it's one of those things where you're just like, I, I was in tears reading it because it was so funny. And at some point you think, oh, he can't, be, he he can't be this funny. Um, yeah, because he, uh, he'd but, know, but he you'd know that he'd be a great granddad as well. Yeah, absolutely. It just seems like such a nice guy. Yeah, and um, the fact that he's a security it, guard, he clearly loves the museum. Oh, he really does. He, there's a, he's a picture of, um, uh, uh, oh, I can't remember what it was, but it was a um, a woman who was like one of the first women to um, traverse the United States on horseback or something like that. And he just goes, oh, this is a, a, a picture of so-and-so who's the first woman to drive. He goes, I think I'd like to have a beer with her. And it was just like little things like that. <laughs> you're just like, oh, I just lovely sentiment. And you, you just, you can't, you know, and, and it's like... You, from a social media perspective you can't like get authenticity like that yeah it would cost an agency millions of pounds to create a character as authentic as tim (laughs) absolutely and he was just he's just brilliant unless he's some incredibly clever fake uh like avatar uh that has been created by a a, an agency i mean that would be awful to find out did this one thing because the the guys in marketing told me to take some photos at the selfie um at the selfie point so he's taken a photo of where the footprints are where you're supposed to stand with the selfie brilliant yeah just everything he gets it wrong in the most adorable way that makes complete sense and then like next he he goes oh do it turns out i'm supposed to stand on the things and take the photo from there and it's just it's as though he's it's as though he's never like encountered technology before but (laughs) isn't it it's just there's just something wonderful and i I think that like you know sort of goes into that whole um you know america small town american way of thinking doesn't it you know like innocent uh, you know innocent in in the face of technology as it were Actually, but before we go into our next guest, um, the something that ties together with this story and also the previous story is, so since we've interviewed Chrissy, who's coming up, I went on to YouTube to watch some of the, some of her Ironman World Championship wins. And actually, I was surprised. I, I associate normally the commentary on American sports as being really bad, especially things like the Olympics or marathons. They just go way off uh, off track or focus on completely the wrong things. The Ironman World Champs are really well covered. Really surprised by it. Really? The, yeah. Unfortunately, not all the videos are there. As good as, good as WWE? <laughs> oh, that's, that's hard. That, I mean, I love the fact that Trump is, has asked Vince McMahon to be his uh, one of his business gurus on how to get business working again. 
wow um but yeah, i was there i was there. i was i was at that wrestlemania where he shaved vince McMahon, where they had that um that that was at um detroit ford field and they were gonna a battle as to who was gonna shave each other's hair off and of course trump won and shaved vince mcmahon's hair off wait trump was in the ring yes so did he yes. learn what was this fighting technique like no, he wasn't doing any fighting. It was like a, it was like a battle of the businessmen type thing. Um, yeah, and it was a, it was a. Yeah, you should look it up. It, it, and uh, but I think um, they did it. So Trump hit someone with a uh, with a with a chair. Yeah. Uh, as well, it was it, it was it was. You know, in the confines of WWE, it was quite well done. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they need to edit that edit that in with current footage you could get a great montage but yeah it's it's really good they the good thing is they 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 do talk about the middle of the race the back of the race different people with different motivations but actually for for sports events from back then they cover the women's race as well as they do the men's and that's quite rare in sports yeah and um yeah it's it's really worth watching sadly they don't have the the last two of a of a four world championship wins but you really get a sense of the story and this interview coming up is i i just thought she was fantastic in it i thought chrissy was so open with us and she's just such a great person but i've learned a lot since and we only get up to her first win in the whole <laughs> The whole interview, we get seven months in, which is crazy. And there's so much more to ask and to talk her about, to talk to her about. Um, you know, having learned even more about the the intricacies of some of the of her performances. But poor strap in for this one, people. Yeah, you. I mean, is there anything you want to say, Jade, before we we jump into the interview? No, no, I don't think so. I, I agree with you. I think this is one of this is one of the best ones we've done. Um, uh, and absolutely loved it but um, but you'll hear our thoughts afterwards yeah but if um if you if you have your wife's photo or your husband's photo in your wallet or on your phone be prepared to rip it in half <laughs> and put chrissy's in there because you're gonna <laughs> fall in love with this woman <laughs> that is a bad boy guarantee <laughs> take it away nick So do badders, uh, we've got an absolute treat for you today. I know we obviously triathlon, triathletes, Ironman are our sworn enemy, but we made a special exception because this guest, when she found out that Jodie was going to attempt an Ironman, she, she said she thought it was her civic duty that she had to come on the podcast <laughs> to save him because he, he will die. So um, she, we said no for a very long time, but thankfully we, we've given in. So welcome on the podcast, the amazing Chrissy Wellington! Yay! Yay! It's an honour, it's an honour! <laughs> Shining armor, actually, saving you from embarrassment, total embarrassment, Jodie. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what? You've you, you, you got a caveat. I can somehow get out of doing it. If you can find the loophole, that'll be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to give some context, Jodie, uh, Chrissy had a, a bike accident three weeks before um, winning one of the world championships, and her coach thought she shouldn't be cycling. Oh, okay. So that's the thing to do, is it? 
just crash your bike at least then you do have that that get out clause i do i think it's i actually i actually need a bike i haven't actually got a bike which which is a slight issue i i've got i've got one i can lend you oh thank you so so much <laughs> yeah no excuses no excuses anymore. please can it be one with a pram on the front and um <laughs> it's <laughs> so where should we start let's um well uh your your journey into to iron man was obviously was was delayed and late and um very unusual for for most iron iron athletes now you know what what, why did you you what kind of triggered you to decide to actually right let's give this a go yeah i guess it was it wasn't convention. It wasn't a conventional path to to professional sport. I turned professional when I was thirty, and I only ever did so wanting to do the Olympic distance because Ironman was for stupid, crazy people, and and not myself or Jody. Um, but uh, you know, it was my coach having turned professional that I guess saw something in me that I hadn't seen in in myself. Um, and that was a capacity, a capacity, I think, for for longer, longer distance. And he, I'd say, encouraged me, kind of strong armed me for those that um, know something about my old coach. But he kind of strong armed me into doing my, my first Ironman. And, and my coach being the type of coach that he was, he didn't really argue. He just said, yes, boss. And, and I found myself on the start line of Ironman career about six months having, um, after having turned professional and that was my kind of first foray into into Ironman but yeah rewind um I was a a sporty active child um focused very much on academia so was competitive driven determined all of those kind of traits that that serve you well as an athlete but I channeled all of those into my studies and then pretty much gave up sport at university went traveling for two years did my ma and then it was during my ma that i started running but i hadn't really run at all before and just did it as a mental respite from doing my ma um and as a means to lose a bit of the weight that i'd gained when i was traveling (laughs) decided to enter the london marathon i looked at a friend you know we all have these role models around us and i had a friend that had run the london marathon and you know i didn't consider her a quote unquote runner necessarily and she'd done the London Marathon and I was so incredibly inspired by it and decided that I would enter that that um event in 2002 and so I did my first marathon in 2002 and that was really where I was kind of bitten by the bug for what was your time then out of interest 308 (laughs) (laughs) wow and I was training you done for that flabbergasted by that by by how much I enjoyed it and and by the time I managed to achieve but I think we all have these kind of talents that lie dormant unless we explore them and had I not chosen to do the marathon I would never have known um at that moment like when you were just training for that when you were running prior to I guess really taking it seriously was it the like why why were you so quick was it the fact you'd go out and you'd be taking hell on the runs or was it your focus or was it kind of natural ability I was 
channeling a lot of the traits that I described as a youngster, so the drive and determination, commitment, discipline, consistency into the training. I wouldn't say I trained in a very knowledgeable fashion. So, you know, I wasn't doing a variety of different um, intensity workouts. For example, I would simply go out and run for the same length of time at the same pace, except for a long run on, on the weekend. But I think developing that base fitness, what we call now base fitness, really served me well and uh, enabled me to achieve what I did. I definitely was consistent in my running. I was definitely obsessive in my running. I wasn't necessarily kind of structured in that. So had I continued along that path, I would have reached a plan. injured. Which I did. I, I was injured, although that was... Um, uh, a bike accident but the next year and that's how I kind of segued into triathlon because I was you know by then passionate about running and training with a, a legendary coach Frank Horwell down at Battersea track um, and was aiming for a sub three marathon and then yeah was injured and so decided to um, switch to swimming just to just um, I guess as a means for recovery and someone mentioned triathlon and I should give it a go and I'd never ridden a bike like you Jodie so there is hope for you yeah and learn how to ride a bike a friend lent me a bike I still have it actually so they might ask for it back <laughs> I was way too big for me um and did did a few triathlons in 2004 um at Eton Dorney so they had a Eton super sprints um there and they were great races very beginner friendly um closed bike course which is which is great and I really really enjoyed them um but then at that time I was working for the government as a policy advisor on international development policy I'd been doing um that job for a, a good number of years uh, three three or four years and wanted to take a sabbatical and get some experience working in international development on the ground so I went to live and work in Nepal so really my triathlon career in 2004 was a couple of super sprint races and that was about it and then I went to Nepal and when I wasn't working um whilst living in Kathmandu I was mountain biking and I just I think I just got super strong doing very kind of unstructured aerobic biking and I didn't see it as training I just we were just going out there cycling each day but obviously the terrain the altitude mm. climatic conditions meant that you get physiologically strong you get psychologically strong and you bring those experiences to bear at a later a later stage so in hindsight yes I guess in answer to your question so it's a long convoluted answer but I took an unconventional path, but I think all athletes come from somewhere. So I didn't come from nowhere. People say, oh, I came from nowhere. She, she just came, you know, into triathlon out of the blue. And, well, I was an experienced triathlete, but I developed this wealth of experience psychologically and, and physically in, in other areas. And I think I brought that to bear um, in this new kind of triathlon journey. And you, quite, you kind of developed like the, the base, as it were, from just the different situations that, that you were put in at each stage. Yeah, and I think that there's, there's a benefit to 
um, children, young adults transitioning through this development pathway and becoming elite athletes. But there is that isn't the only route to professional sport. And you can, can come at it from different directions. And I think I was probably the athlete that I was because I came to it slightly later, having had, you know, an ac- a good academic grounding, having had a career, um, maybe having a slightly different view, a, a newer perspective, and, and, and yes, strength and uh, mental strength, physical strength from a slightly different activity than, than simply swim, bike and run. Just a quick question before we move just beyond that. Just when you, after you, you got sort of 308 in the marathon, did you know then that you wanted to, to, to be coached straight away to, to, to improve? How, what was your thinking directly after that? Because obviously after that, that's what's led on to everything else. Yeah, with my my first thought at the at the end of the marathon was I really would like to do another one of those again. Even though I got onto the the Portaloo toilet and, and couldn't actually get up because <laughs> and I remember my mum was patiently waiting outside, <laughs> just strumming up and going, "Yeah, you know, where's, where's my daughter?" We having making noises as you got up. <laughs> <laughs> strange looks and then yeah she had to actually kind of lift me up off 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 the toilet but I think I'd like I said I'm a really competitive driven person and I channeled all of that into academia um and I think I needed something different I needed something else and so having found this sport yeah I think immediately I I saw um it as a as an amazing channel for self development it was a it was an incredible new tra- challenge for me but um i'm not being modest but I, I wasn't compared to the people that i was running with overly talented yes for, for many many people spend their whole lives trying to break three hours trying to break four hours so i i you know i acknowledge that um it, it's all relative but relative to some of the people i was training with 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 um under frank horwell i was a kind of mediocre runner mm. there was you know i um one of my training partners then lucy hazel now lisa mccallister but she was she's 235 marathoner and i'm mm. i'm running with people like that so i had I had these kind of rabbits to chase and people to look up to. So uh, that- I guess I guess you're comparing yourself to the finished product to a certain extent, though, whereas you were just at the start of your journey. I, I was, I was, and but I but I saw uh, looking at them, I could not necessarily see where I wanted to go. I definitely didn't have the capabilities of running, you know, kind of two thirties. But I, I I I could definitely look to them and see that there was room for. Um, room for improvement and that really really appealed to me and then when some when triathlon presented itself just for a friend recommending that I that I do it again it was it was an amazing new it was an amazing new challenge but I didn't have any aspirations of national let alone global kind of greatness it was very much a a personal a personal challenge and, and a new sport that I could sink my teeth into and, and something that was very different from my my then career. And did, did your career, is there space in the civil service and in inter, international development to be incredibly competitive and incredibly driven? Like, were you able to scratch that itch or was 
were you having to use sport as a way to um, satisfy yourself in that respect? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I, I think um, uh, that the, the, the challenges posed by the two, two kind of different aspects of life were, were, very, were, were very different. So, yes, I intellectually... At work, I was incredibly challenged. It was a, a, a fantastic job that I was really, really passionate about working with some phenomenal, phenomenal people on some really, really important global issues. And, and for me, that was incredibly gratifying and challenging and satisfying. But I think sport offered something slightly different that, you know, that, yeah, that, that physical physical challenge and, and the the opportunity to test your test your limits in in a different way and the beauty of it is that you have this preconceived notion of where those limits are and unless you embark on that journey you will never ever know and you know like I said having started on the triathlon journey the thought of doing an Ironman was absolutely inconceivable you know, I just couldn't fathom how people would run a marathon after swimming and cycling that way, mm. uh, that far. But, I, you know, once you progress along that, that journey and, you know, those, take those steps, I guess, up that proverbial mountain, then it, it becomes a lot more achievable. So do, um, do you think, did your coach, do you think he knew that Ironman was a distance for you even before you tried it? So I I won the world what we call the world age group championships so the essentially the world amateur championships in Switzerland in 2006 and I was 29 and I had a decision to make about whether or not to go professional and it was a really it was a really scary decision and I sought the advice of a lot of people family and friends but also someone introduced me to my my first coach and I went out for a week to like a, a baby basically a test week so he could take a look at me and he said well physically you've got what it takes to to become a good professional triathlete but I'm gonna have to chop your head off um which was I guess a slightly macabre way of telling me that I had a lot of work to do um psychologically um especially resting my mind and mm -hmm. not being so over analytical um and so we sure, surely that's a good thing though isn't it mm, her, yes and no I think as an athlete he used to call it paralysis by analysis you just overthink everything and mm. sometimes you've just got to execute you execute the training session as set the best you can and you move on does it, so does that mean that you was he worried that you questioned what was in the training plan or is that is that the issue yeah right. yeah very perceptive so everything so I'm I'm a very independent person and I found it really difficult initially to um give myself over to him and for right. him <laughs> the responsibility of my whole life 
mm. you know, my, my, my career, my financial security, where I was living, how I was spending every hour of every day. I found that really, really hard and I fought against it. So I just questioned everything. Is this the right training session? Should I be doing this race? Should I be traveling to this race early? And it wasn't until a few months passed and he said, look, Chrissy, you're either in or you're out. But you can't keep questioning <laughs> on my yeah. decision making. Just liberate yourself and the burden of questioning every decision and just let me take control and you execute. And for me, that was a profoundly impactful moment because, like he said, it released this burden from my shoulders. And I just followed the order, which to my ears now sounds quite alien because I'm not that subservient. Um, but it, it worked at that time as a new athlete. I simply followed his training program and trusted him implicitly in terms of what he prescribed me. So, so to back to your point, mm. when he suggested I do an Ironman, to me that I placed my trust in him and, and I, 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 I knew that he wouldn't have put me in that position had he not thought I was ready. And so, yes, he had seen something in me that I hadn't seen in myself, partly because for me, Iron Man was this inconceivable beast. And also, I didn't really know anything about it. You know, even rewind this, what was this, 2006 and seven in this country, Iron Man just wasn't getting the coverage that it is now. We didn't have the events that we have in this country and we definitely didn't have the number of participants doing Ironman. It was very much focused on Olympic distance and, and sprint distance. And so I hadn't really heard of it. And it wasn't until I turned professional that someone described Ironman to me. I said, no, that's absolutely bonkers, crazy, silly. And I was then training with Ironman athletes and I could then have a barometer of where I stood via them and my coach was saying well actually you could be relatively good at this I think you should do one that I started to get a sense that well maybe that there is something in it for me um but I did I did definitely feel relatively ill prepared in the conventional sense to to be on that start line of Ironman career and did you, was there an element of, because if something is, doesn't have the exposure of the, the races that you know, was, was it the Olympics itself that you were drawn to with the, uh, the Olympic triathlon distance? And was there also a, a worry that actually as a pro athlete who is having to rely on their finances, that going into a sport that isn't as big could actually um, make it harder for you to, to be successful? I think Olympics was the Olympic distance was what I knew um, locally as well. So there were people within my, my running group. Um, and then um, I joined the Brat club in Birmingham um, simply because I had friends there and was introduced to the sport through them. So they were mainly focusing on Olympic distance at that time. Um, and there were a lot of Olympic distance events in the UK. So I was aware of that. So I think I gravitated towards that. And then obviously 
um, since 2000. It has been in the Olympics, as the name suggests. So it just seemed like the natural progression. It, it wasn't a financial decision at all, um, really, because I I never went into the sport as a, a, as a means to earn money. You need to earn money, but I didn't see it as a cash cow. Um, mm. I'd saved up um, some money. I mean, as a civil servant, you're definitely not um, that well paid, but I had a, a little bit behind me. Um, and I knew that I could probably survive a year without needing to earn too much. But again, mm. Brett, my coach, was was clever. So he put me in some kind of backwater but big money races. So he had <laughs> money and it whetted my appetite and enabled me to have that financial security to, to carry on. So I remember we, we, we trained in Switzerland and we trained in Thailand and there was an inaugural and it never happened again for good reason. Bangkok Triathlon. Those have been to privilege enough to be to Bangkok. Yeah. It's a phenomenal city um, and culture. However, you don't want to swim <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of it because every form of effluent. Oh. <laughs> man is in that river anyway so that's where we swam and I remember swimming past dead animals and and you know human feces and all kinds of stuff oh god and it, it was really really vile and at, at the end of it I was just ordered to drink a can of coke to kind of <laughs> 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 the nasties that I probably had consumed but it was a um, the the prize purse I think was a thousand pound equivalent. Which oh wow! Well, I, I thought you were saying it was like a huge amount because given that you're travelling to Thailand to race already, I mean you're not getting changed from your flights and. <laughs> For me, because yeah, we were training out there, so I didn't have to didn't have to incur those costs. But for me, a thousand pounds was a huge amount. Wow! Mm. I'd actually earned something from a from a race. Um, so if, if you weren't racing, if someone had said to you, I'm going to, I'll pay you a thousand pounds to swim in that water <laughs> with dead animals and feces, would you have taken it? There's many things I'd do in Thailand for a thousand pounds. That wouldn't, wouldn't be one of them. That David would. David, I don't want to ask you that question because you absolutely, you'd probably do it for a tenner. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Just, just for a, a little bit of um, of applause. Anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, the Thais actually were quite baffled to see all these kind of scattered <laughs> people just kind of jumping into this, uh, into the water. I remember that because Brett wasn't actually there, he was back at camp and, and I remember going along the riverbank taking photos of things that were floating past <laughs> so that he you had planning a big... your race nutrition were you yes <laughs> 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 you don't want to be like one of those filter feeders do you <laughs> um anyway so that was prior to the Ironman career escapades but uh, you know he enabled me to to earn a bit of money but you know I, I at the outset I, I was really uncomfortable as a professor professional athlete uh, it just it felt very alien to me and it is a very selfish self-absorbed pursuit being being a professional sports person um you can make that uh, selfish pursuit 
less selfish um, by being a, by the way in which you carry yourself, the way in which you race, um, um, how well you represent um, uh, the sport and inspire others, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, there's no bones about it. It's about you and the goals that you want to achieve. And uh, it just felt really self-indulgent to just living this professional sports person life um and i was was that guilt then was it was that guilt kind of um i was gonna say is it is it because you because you come from like international development Mm -hmm. background which is almost like the complete opposite is that is it because it's such a contrast where where your other people is is your uh, are your focus and this is just about you. Is it? Is it that? Both of you are right and really perceptive, actually, in saying that it's it. It it yes, it just felt like it was the total opposite to what I'd been doing before. Which yes, there was a personal challenge in the work that I was doing, but essentially, you're looking to drive positive change for others that are far less fortunate and yes it's a guilt that that you're then not doing that um but I I was conveying kind of my uh feelings to to Brett and he said look Chrissy through your achievements in this sport you'll be able to achieve more out of it than you ever thought possible and that's what drove me Um, that's that's quite a big statement by him because the reality is that that's only true if you did reach the level that you have but actually you've got to put all the hard work in and the selfishness for the first few years and it's only if you become so such a big name that you can then steer audience audiences in different ways that 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 becomes true yeah and and there was no guarantee that his prophecy would have would have come true, but again, he was he was very perceptive. And at a time when I probably didn't realise what my capabilities were, he he did, and he's coached enough talented athletes to I think know what he's looking for, um, and know what characteristics you know physically mentally um you need to to be a world champion and and I think I he saw that in me and obviously there are no guarantees but um and do you think it was did it hold you back to begin with and 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 how long did it take for you to finally feel actually comfortable with with who you were at that time um I I felt like a fish out of water in the first prior to Ironman career. I felt like a fish out of water. I felt like a new girl um, at a school in which I didn't belong. It was a very challenging environment to be in. I felt excluded. I felt bullied, um, some of which were engineered because he wanted to stoke a fire in me and for basically me to put my finger up at all the other girls and guys and just say f you i don't care what you think of me i'm going to show you and i did um and that's really um i i I guess another 
another thing that motivated me in, in, in the very, very early days was proving to everyone there that I, that it was my rightful place to. Um, what form did that kind of bullying and exclusion take? Pardon? What form did that bullying and exclusion take? you know just not talking to me going out for dinner and not inviting me or going on group rides and deliberately dropping me wow things like that but this is professional sport it's it's not a warm cuddly cozy environment it you've got to you've got to be tough and you've got to be strong and you've got to be independent and you've got to be self-motivated and you know I I think that there was a method in Brett's madness. Um, would I choose to to coach people that way? Probably not, but it definitely served a purpose at at, at that time. But I, you know, part of it is my, you know, this imposter syndrome that I had initially, and this worry that I didn't belong and um, that I wasn't worthy of of being part of that that group. So obviously any anything that anyone did maybe i'd amplified that in in my mind um did you know that that was his strategy at the time because if you've put all of your trust in your coach and then to have him actually for the right reasons then be ostracizing you or causing you to feel isolated is is really tough i I think i i didn't realize this and um until later so in retrospect i i realized that, that, that he was adopting those strategies and um even that the process uh, not a plug at all but the process of writing my autobiography was very cathartic because i was working through some of the early days and actually looking at what happened and trying to um uh understand those and explain those and rationalize them and so I think it was through that process that in retrospect I could I could see what was what was happening you know one example was when I when I first turned up we we were training in Thailand and um, we he didn't tell my roommate that I was coming and he didn't tell anyone that I was coming so I arrived and I, I had my bike box, a bag in this in this country that I hadn't been to and no one was there. Everything was locked up and I knocked on the door and, and luckily one other athlete was downstairs. Um, I remember it's Harry Wiltshire eating cornflakes on the sofa and I was like, hi, I'm Chrissy. And he's like, oh, hi. Um did Brett tell you I'm coming? No, he didn't. Um, okay, where am I sleeping? And he said, oh, I, I don't know. I, I think up in, with Nicola, and I'm, I'm sleeping in a room with Nicola Spirik, you know, um, Olympic champion, um, now Olympic champion, phenomenal athlete. And I just walk in. He hadn't told her I was staying with her, so she got incredibly pissed off with me um and then had a blazing row with him and I turn up this the next woke all woke up the next morning and all this is kicking off and I'm like oh my oh god, god. What? but this is the way he operated um you know maybe pitting people against one another and it was a very um 
interesting <laughs> um, way of um, uh, developing psychological strength. Um, but having said all that, everything changed when I won my first Ironman and um, it changed beyond recognition once I'd become world champion. As, as in everything changed within you or within their reaction to you? Both. Um, I felt that I was finally worthy of, of being a professional athlete and had that validation that I felt that I, I needed to, to prove that, that, yeah, that I was, I was worthy. Um, and also maybe I'd garnered their respect. Um, and so the dynamic was was very very different. I wasn't bottom dog anymore. I definitely didn't tell mm. was top dog, but you know I, I definitely wasn't the, the the new the new girl at school. And and actually that's something I haven't even cons- considered because none of the guests we've ever spoken to go on training camps. They you know you're not surrounded by people that you're complete you're constantly batter, battling you're always just there on race day because as ultra runners there are no training camps there might be for 1500 meter runners or for sprinters but actually it's it's such a different setup so is that do you get a sense that if you go into professional ironman triathlon camps around the world is it dog eat dog from the start in most of them do you think um there are there are few there are only a few kind of triathlon groups in existence um at that time there were one or two um at the ironman distance so i just found myself within within one of those generally it's it's an individual sport people train alone um, or train independently, but will link up with others, potentially, you know, perhaps a group swim squad, or they'll cycle or run with 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 groups, but not in the kind of intense um, living, training, breathing kind of <laughs> environment that, that we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Olympic distance, there, there are more camps um, as the squads train together, either you know, geographically, so so the, the maybe the GB squad will train together, or they'll be coached, uh, coached athletes under a, a single a single coach that that trained trained together. I I think this is less to do with the group environment and more to do with the coach, and the coach okay. engineered um, the dynamic um, in a very manipulative, um, clever way. Um, so what were some of the people there going to be your direct competitors at things like the Ironman World Champs? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so did that- I had that barometer and I, and I knew where I stood um, um, performance-wise relative to them in, in training. So that gave me some some confidence but even and, going and were, were you ahead of them before the first world champs in your mind yes um in training but that you know as i need to tell you that training is an altogether different beast than racing mm. 
Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, generally across all the three, all the three disciplines combined, yes, I probably was um, more, more talented, but I, I definitely didn't translate that to assuming that I would beat them on race day um, until I did. So within within the group, aside from the the coach, were you know were the things like mind games being played, or you know what what, what was it kind of like between you without like the interjection of the coach? Were mm. because as you obviously a threat to all of them, how how did that kind of play out in in kind of your relationships with them? It's just really difficult to to, mm-hmm. to yeah, put was, that in context. It was just like they didn't really like me we can we can we can connect without feeling a lot did, did, so we, did, we know did exactly like, what you mean <laughs> did they like each other um yeah there, there were cliques right <laughs> cliques but individually i got on with people really well right, um, right. and especially after i'd won the world championships and developed really strong friendships and some of those stand to this day I just think that competitive sport can be quite a ruthless environment and it's not to excuse behavior like that and bullying like that but there is a dynamic often within training groups and you have to navigate that and I did I did too and Yes, it's uh, earnest, isn't it? It's almost like you're being forged into something. Yeah, and and I and I also think that, like I said, a lot a lot came down to to the coach and and the the way he um, uh, stirred the pot, as as it were, because <laughs> I definitely know other other coaches, other groups, and and it's just not it's not like that, um, but. Yeah, I I don't want to do a disservice to the people that I trained with because many of them are are good friends, phenomenal people and phenomenal athletes. I think just in that situation under that coach, it didn't always bring out the best in any of us. And it probably didn't bring out the best in in me either. Do you you think you looking back on that? Do you do you think considering the results that he got from you, do you think I mean, and, and the fact that this, you know, this kind of approach seems to be common across competitive sports. Do you think that is the only way to train people? It's a necessity or do you think that there, it can be done another way? I don't think it's common across competitive sports. Oh, really? Okay. And I, and I, I think it definitely can and should be done in, in other ways. I mean, we know high profile examples, for example, mm. running um, out of Oregon of of coaches that are abusive and and bullying and is unacceptable and i i think that the spotlight is being shone quite rightly on those approaches and i do think there are are better ways of getting the most out of athletes and it's i it's not right to have a performance at all cost mentality I think we need to ensure that athletes across the board are holistically healthy. Um, 
And, and do you, have you got a view on how you can do that? Because you've you've said how you essentially turn over all of your power to to these people who are probably more experienced, have more influence, have more money. Um, like is, how would you stop it? Um, we need whistleblowers. For example, people like Cara Goucher, who have stood up um, against Alberto, should be mm-hmm. should be applauded. But a lot of these coaches um, exist and continue to coach because of that culture of dependence that they breed um, in in their athletes. Um, it's almost a paternal relationship that that they cultivate between um, the male coach and and usually the the female the female athlete mm-hmm. that is not healthy um, and is is in many cases highly highly detrimental and I, and I think we need to have roots for exposing that behavior um, and for people to be held accountable, um, not just in, in sport, but in, in any industry where that that happens, um, because, you know, it's only by breaking silences that, you know, people do kind of peel back <laughs> the layers and see, see what is happening, happening, happening under, underneath. And, and would you, do you think, looking back now, would you have gone in a different direction from the start? Another great question. Um, I achieved the success I did um, quickly because of the coach I had. Um, But I wouldn't say it was a holistically healthy experience and having left that environment and moved to a different coach with whom I had a very very different relationship I I definitely know which one I I prefer Um, I think I would have achieved success and I did achieve incredible things under 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 the, the second coach Dave Scott um, I might not have done so had I gone to him straight away as quickly, but I still think I would have achieved what I, I did un- under him. So um, you can't turn the clock back. I think I, 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 in, on balance, don't agree with a lot of the techniques that um, were used in, in the early years. And, and I think we're all, you know, the whole industry is is learning and, you know, awareness and uh, thought about how to manage people and how to respect people is changing in mm. all sports. So, um, yeah. And um, so coming into that first world championship, then you obviously have been uh, quite a few chip on your sho- chips on your shoulder that have been created by the coach. You knew some of your competitors really well. Was the only focus to win so there's this paradox in sport um some athletes from a very young age often have this kind of north star this goal 
this Olympic gold or this world championship gold and they they dedicate everything to achieving it. I was not that athlete. And again, I think there are many routes to success and I became world champion despite not having that as my goal. Um, and that's an interesting concept because um, we're often told you've got to have that goal then you set out to achieve it, right? Yeah. Um, I had the goal of going to that race and doing the very, very best I could. And I had a note from my coach that said, don't defer to anyone. And that's exactly what I did. I just went there, committed to doing my very, very best and with zero deference. And I achieved more than I could have ever imagined but it was very much a process-focused goal than, a, than an outcome-focused yeah. goal. My coach, he tells me or told me, thought I could win that race, but he never once prior to the race told me that. Um, so I didn't have aspirations of winning. I had aspirations of a top 10 that was what I thought I was I was capable of and then when I went into the lead it was just incredibly surreal and I overtook a whole pack of girls many of whom I knew on the bike and there were two more two more up the road but I overtook this pack of girls and then the two more up the road and I was like oh my gosh I am in the lead but I never I never questioned my right to be there um I didn't necessarily think that I was going to retain the lead for the, the rest of the race. Um, but I I think I just was liberated by not being constrained by a, a weight of expectation. And winning that race just kind of was beyond any of my wildest wildest dreams and and obviously at that point you know where your capabilities lie and then there is that weight of expectation both the expectation you have on yourself and that others have for you going going forward and then you do have a have the goal of of winning and and um your mindset alters slightly based on that but the first race no um and I think going into that race, liberated, somewhat naive, unconstrained was one of the reasons that I was able to, to achieve what I did. When, when we've been looking at um, sort of research around, I don't know a huge amount about Iron Man, amazingly, as you might, as you might have gathered. <laughs> but, don't liberate you, Jodie. No, 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 no I, like your, I like your no expectations approach. I think this is the, <laughs> the one to take. This is the one. That doesn't mean no achievement. Doesn't mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. Um, the, the, the thing that keeps coming up about that is that people keep talking about upset, big upset um, uh, around that and the fact that it was... Um, like an incredible feat for for like a rookie to win it and everything else. Uh, did did you did you feel that when that uh, after that happened? You know the way that people were talking to you, the way that people were um, uh, they were talking about afterwards. And, and how does that make did you, does that make the feat even greater in your eyes? Or, or, or what was your perception of it from the inside out? Um, 
was flabbergasted that I'd won because I never would have put myself in the company of, of world champions. I I thought that I'd won not because I'd excelled, but because others hadn't. Right. Uh, was that true? Was that immediately? Did you think that as you were doing I it, or did you think that subsequently? Have I won because I'm I'm great and I'm the best, or have I won just because others have had a bad day? Yeah. Um. And so it wasn't until I think I'd almost validated it with another win uh, I'm Man Australia, maybe four or five months later, that I started to realise that. I had an aptitude and I and I had a I had a talent. Um, I think in 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 many sports, especially at, at the at the global level, you the view is that you've got to have gone through this rite of passage. And Ironman, in many respects, <laughs> takes a lot of attempts to get right because there are so many working parts. Mm. You know, it's it. In any sport, you, you're not just looking at the training you're doing; all the kind of minutiae around it, and and then not to mention you've got a you know for me eight or nine hour race where where things can can happen. So you you've got to get a lot of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. And so there's this view that especially racing in in an environment like Hawaii that requires you to. Um, adapt in a, in a very um uh unique way um means that people don't achieve success straight away and so that's why I think there was a lot of surprise when I did because I hadn't gone through this you know proverbial right of, right. Right of passage mm-hmm. um but I what I was saying I mean right at the start of the interview was that I'd gone through a gone along a pathway, but it was just kind of not the, the, the straight linear <laughs> pathway that the others might have, you know, trod. So, but then again, I'd, I'd I'd assume that the the rite of passage and the pathway that's important that that do stop people from being so successful so early isn't training hard or isn't getting used to a bit of pain it comes down to more like how to transition properly, how to, um, how to not go out too fast, how to pace, how to, um, you know, actually get that mental battle with someone. And none of those things were really elements of what you were doing prior to going into the side, man. No, I mean, I was still working out my nutritional strategy throughout my career. That's always something that you, you nuance and, and, and play with, um, of course, depending on the, external climatic conditions and things like that but yeah nutrition was something I was still playing with so I I, I don't think I ever got that right until you know closer to the end but pacing was something that came relatively naturally to me I just felt that I had this internalized race pace and that I could dial into it and I could go I I didn't use and I still really don't a lot of techno um technological kind of tools to to help me help guide my effort I use a lot of 
RPE, so perceived effort essentially, to know when I'm working hard, when I'm taking it easy, when I'm on race pace. I, I'm very intuitive in, in that way. Um, so that came very naturally. So you're right, I didn't have a lot of practice in it, especially not Ironman distance, but it, it, it's something that I, I, I don't know. It, it came came more naturally to me. What I found, um, I think I had developed through the course of, of my life was this with the psychological tools. So the, the strategies that you can use to endure discomfort. I mean, when you do endurance sport, you have to endure, you know, and, and you know, you get into a race knowing that it's not going to go right, right in inverted commas. You know, things are going to go wrong in an, in an eight hour race, 17 hour race, however long it takes you to do an Ironman, things are not going to go according to your plan and it's how you deal with them. How do I deal with adversity? My goggles come off, my reps rips, you know, I have a mechanical on the bike how do I deal with pain how do I deal with discomfort because you don't expect those things not to happen you expect them to happen but you know that you have the capabilities of of dealing with them and I think again it sounds slightly arrogant for me to say but I think that came quite naturally to me to have that have those tools and strategies and then as I progressed in my career I honed them and I developed them and um and do you think a a 22 year old version of yourself that would have come as naturally absolutely not and I think that partly why I mean uh, Iron Man is suited to those that are in their in their 30s um you know even early early 40s Jodie how old are you 41 I have Prime. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's just you're reaching the, the peak age. Um, yeah. it, it does suit those that are slightly, I guess, more mature in, a, in an, as, an athletic sense because partly the physiological changes, but partly due to the psychological aspect of it as well. You have a mature head on head on your shoulders. Um, not to say that those are younger that are, are not going to have that, but I, I do think you bring your a slightly longer life experience to bear on 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 racing, um, and that can be that can be really really important. I mean, I wanted every Ironman I ever did, I wanted to quit, um, and so you need to have those kind of that psychological strength to to battle those that self doubt or discomfort or pain um and how how early into because this is something having never done one i i haven't really got a concept of how early into a race does that desire to quit and does that major discomfort come because you know for example if i do any ultra or any race it's only the last 20 percent really that i start to think oh hello you're not doing it hard enough, David, if, you, if it's <laughs> only in the last 20%. <laughs> um, it, for me, it, it varies. Sometimes it can be in the first 200 metres of the swim. And you just think, oh, my gosh, my body isn't responding. Um, it can be <laughs> intermittently any time on on the bike um it the, the at the latter stages it's it's fatigue right setting in um but 
uh, you know, initially, um, you know, it's, it can be any number of, of reasons, but yeah, it's, it, it's definitely intermittent throughout, throughout the race. Um, and, and it can also be due to, you know, things cropping up that you don't expect. Like I said, like losing your goggles or a flat tire or things, you know, things like that. And, you know, one race at world championships, 2008, I was 11 minutes down. Having been in the lead 11 minutes down and you're just like, you can let your shoulders slump and you can just think, oh, it's not my day. Was that from a technical law? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a flat tire um a competitor actually gave me their gas canister and enabled oh. to get back on the road and guys just a phenomenal display of sports personship um and um i think you can face those type of problems um you know with a cup half full or a cup half empty mentality, can't you? And and for me, it was just a firework up my backside, and I was just determined to catch, you know, the lead group again, and and progressively pick people off, and and, and went back into the lead. But maybe another athlete might have said, actually, it's just not my day. I'm 11 minutes down. I've come here to win. I am. I'm just not. I'm just not continuing. So. Um, in a race as long as Ironman, it's it's a kind of microcosm of life. You know, you have highs, you have lows, you have problems, and you've got to cope with the highs as much as the lows. You can't get too carried away with the times when you're feeling really great either. Um, you've just got to kind of keep this cool, calm head on your shoulders for the for the you know for the duration. So. With the second, then, when you came into the the first race after the World Championships, you went to Australia. Was it very different in in how you felt, and also did you race very differently? Um, there was a pressure, an internal and external pressure. I was obviously catapulted into the public eye, and you know, I, I'm all too aware that triathlon Ironman is is still a a minority sport. So I'm I'm not have got celebrity status like like um, many professional athletes. But still, within our sport, I was a a uh, a celebrity and a public figure, and that brought um, a very interesting challenge to um, you know to the preparations and I you know just gave me additional things to think about so prior to the world championships the first one I just prepared myself in a, in a quite suboptimal fashion um but going into the race in Australia and, and latter races obviously you're 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 marrying your training with the need quite rightly to represent your commercial partners to um uh have relationships with with the media to do press conferences to meet fans sign autographs all of those kind of things so that requires management and an organization which i i wasn't 
overly experienced as and kind of you obviously got to learn learn on the job and put the right people around you as well so that you can um, manage it most effectively but going into the race the preparations there were like I said more pressure um, but once the gun goes off you are just racing so I always try and remember that that however I feel prior to the gun going off is not will not extend into the race once you're once the gun goes off you're, you're just racing um, but did, did, does it affect you going into it do you think is it extra tiredness extra um le- less mindfulness and and do you find that it does disrupt you physically and, and mentally so that even if you intend of not taking it into the race it could actually impact on it you can see being world champion in two ways you can see it as a, as a burden um, and you can see the obligations or the commitments that come with that as a, as a, as a burden or as a, a difficulty, or you can see them as an advantage. And for me, it was, it was the latter. It was an absolute privilege to be an ambassador for my sport. It was an absolute honour to be crowned world champion. Um, it was an honour to, to, to be a spokesperson, to be asked to give autographs. It can be tiring, but like I said, you just have to manage it. Um, because I, I just saw it as this incredible, incredible privilege. And for me, it was the wind under my wings. I think it just enabled me to achieve more. Once you learn how to manage manage your time and to say no to some people at some point, that's really, really important. Um, but once you learn how to do that, you can realise the full potential of, of being, uh, um, you know, the best athlete in the world. And, and that's a really privileged position to be in. And, and you know, I... I, I really wanted to, to seize that opportunity and, and use it um, to its best advantage. And, and do you think that the fact that going into the sport and the, those first few months, you had been so concerned with it being a, quite a self-serving part of your life and you wanted to be able to help others, and that the fact you had that could have been a weakness at that stage do you think that that actually turned into a strength that then allowed you to use your position to look forward as opposed to other champions who'd see the pressure as a way to kind of look back and to be looking over their shoulder more yeah I think I had the benefit of perspective having had a career having had all of the you know the kind of different life experiences that I had so I, I retained a perspective I could always see the bigger picture and I could see how sport fitted into that bigger picture so I could I I could see immediately on crossing the finish line in Hawaii in 2007 that I had a responsibility to use that to um to drive positive change I, I, and I saw that as as my mission, and I remember I 
obviously partied for the rest of of the night (laughs) (laughs) important very important didn't have have any friends and family there um so i i I, you know found a few few new friends to to party (laughs) and then um got up very early the next morning um you don't really sleep after an ironman anyway but got very early and wrote my victory speech there's a big banquet the next day um, open air banquet um, with lots of Hawaiian traditions. About four thousand people go, and they present the top ten. And then the, the winners are um, male and female um, are invited to, to deliver a speech. Are you, were you okay with public speaking at that stage? I, I love public speaking. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed um, in my in my role um, working for the government, so I felt very comfortable doing it. Um, I wasn't aware of what previous kind of victors had, had spoken about but all I knew is what I wanted to speak about and I wrote this speech um and I still have it it's probably on YouTube somewhere um and during that speech spent quite a lot of time speaking about international development and the power of sport <laughs> <laughs> put everyone else to sleep but it was my marker and I put that marker down to say this is what is important this is why professional sport matters it's yes it's entertainment but it can mean more than simply this kind of frivolous pursuit of a personal goal and (laughs) how did that go down yeah in not so many words but Well, you'll have to you have to ask those in the audience because um, it could have come across a little bit of like I don't even care about this. Whatever. What so about I, the pool? What, what I was trying to say is that what we do matters, but it matters for reasons that aren't just about ourselves. And it sounds a bit sanctimonious, doesn't it? But it was really important for me to say that, and I. I, you know, I still stand by those words um, now, and it was really, really important to me as a as an athlete that, you know, I I used it and um, having. Do you think enough athletes? Still, do you think enough athletes do have that view? Um, it's a very person. Uh, you know, I, I it's not for me to make a judgment on what people do and don't do. I just think we're we're public figures and, and we have a we have a responsibility, or a, we can see it as an opportunity to really drive change. I mean, in a very small way, I'm not going to say that we you know we're the panacea <laughs> to global you know global poverty, but you know I'm sure many a professional athlete has you know can recount a time where they've said a little child has come up to them and said you know you've inspired me to do this that or the other or I had a 73 year old woman say you inspired me to take up triathlon and you you're able to do that but you're only able to do that effectively if you have um sounds mercenary but a brand and an image and a message that will resonate with people. So what was the the the, uh, the time delay between your coach saying to you, you can use this as a 
a way of talking about international development and that speech? Um, eight, probably April 2007 and I won in October 2007. <laughs> <laughs> so he was right. Yeah, he, he, he was right. Um, and for, you know, for his thoughts, he, he was, you know, his prophecy came... But that's it. No, but that's it. I mean, that's just. I mean, not necessarily that he was right, but just the fact that you were able to fulfil that in such a short space of time must have, for for you personally, just mitigated that that sense of guilt or or, or anything else that you had. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it was just a vindication that I that becoming a professional athlete was the right was the right thing to do. Um, but you know, I wouldn't say that I won the world championships and, uh, you know, I was able to change the world. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you can start to um, have a platform, I'd say. I'd just call it a platform and a voice. Um, you don't have... Um, it's, or, easy, but it's, it's better to set your stall out then, though, isn't it? Because I think there's, there's it, sometimes there's always a little bit of... Um, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the wrong thing, but sometimes there's always a little bit of scepticism where mm -hmm. uh, someone has a public position and then they take up a cause and all of a sudden people go, no, oh, well, they turned to that cause. Whereas you did, you, this was your very first opportunity to do it and you brought it up then. So it allows you then to carry on doing it every time that you, you have that opportunity with great authenticity. It was very authentic because it, I, it was my first, like, international development was my passion. I, it was where I came from. Um, and there wasn't, there were opportunities as I progressed along my career to to represent different causes. So I wouldn't say that I was, um, I was averse to, to championing new causes as, as I went, as I went along. But there were always ones that, kind of resonated with me had a you know as a had a had, had a personal re relevance but definitely the the drive to to use the platform was was there right right from the outset but we can all do that it's not just you have to be on the global stage to do it we can all kind of be great role models and motivators for those for those around us um and I think we all you know a lot of us a lot of us do and once you got a sense that actually your position could affect change, did that then become part of the motivation as well to continue um, doing well? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, an incredible carrot. <laughs> you know, it's it motivated me each and, each and every day. Um, and I also... Uh, I'm quite a paradoxically like an introvert and extrovert and I loved racing because I think that extroverted side of me saw it very much as a performance so I was almost performing on a on a stage and through that performance I felt that I could inspire people so it wasn't just the finish line picture it was a way in which I wanted to race to bring people with me as it as it were and race with energy, race with a smile, race with grace and integrity and all those things um, because I think that that's really, really important. So you don't have to be a world champion. You have to cross the finish line first to 
to to have that impact it's also in the way in which you carry yourself the way in which you represent brands the way in which you you know you you race and you respond to the crowds when you're um when you swim bike and running that matters that matters as well and and in the future world championships when you got up to give your your other your next speeches did you continue down the same vein was was there like were were people ready for it were they changing their speeches was there an element of you know when Joaquin Felix uh, Phoenix gets stand up at the Oscars you think oh no here we go or were people actually embracing of it um I think people were were uh, they expected it <laughs> um, whether or not they... <laughs> that's good that's good though isn't it <laughs> But, you know, the question is, do you want to hear a, an athlete stand up there and talk about, <laughs> about or do you want them just to reel off a list of their sponsors? Mm. Yeah. You know, mm. and say thank you to this sponsor. Thank you to this sponsor. Gosh, I, I'm not I'm not um, don't want to imply that there's my, my sponsors. Um, I'm anywhere ungrateful for their absolutely mm. phenomenal support. They enable, enable me to make a living. But there's a time and a place to mm. mention your sponsors. And. Um, I wanted to represent those brands in, in, a, in a slightly different way. And I think that's why they worked with me. And so that's what I chose to do. I chose to use the speech for, you know, for that. And obviously to thank my family, to thank my friends, to thank my team, my volunteers, the volunteers, you know, all of the, all of the people that go into supporting you um, and, and your racing. But, um, yeah, ultimately it was um, about something more whether or not people wanted to hear it is another matter <laughs> <laughs> well you know, I'm, I'm very conscious of time and, and rather than opening up another um conversation which is going to take for ages uh, forever if if we're to kind of i guess sum up this part of um of, of how you've affected change and kind of what you'd like people to take away from from this interview or, or just to bear in mind in the future what, what do you think we can do to to help and, and what do you think we should be thinking of and considering in in our day-to-day lives um first of all don't be afraid to try something new because had i been afraid to start running or try triathlon i'd never be sitting here and have the opportunity to talk to you today so just don't be scared or fearful of trying something new because you never know where your talents may lie, Jody. Um, <laughs> um, also, don't forget that you know you can be role models too, um, and that in, in in you know following a certain path you can you can inspire others um and that's really really important um because that's how the snow snowball continues to roll and we continue to grow our amazing sport in my case of of triathlon but now more recently of ultra running and and just you know carry yourself in a way that will inspire others to to follow footsteps or carve out their own path and I guess for you know the the the, the, the sole purpose of this interview was just to help JD really. So if we're to, uh... <laughs> you haven't got any tips. You haven't asked me about <laughs> or nutrition or oh. you were just reeling me in. So 
I can be at the end of the phone when you need me. Yes, so all we've got so far is, Jodie, you have to visualise how you're going to change the world when you win the Ironman Championships. Yeah. And, yeah. I have to, and I have to I have to be surrounded by people that don't like me and don't talk to me. <laughs> uh, and, and I have to get fired up and angry at. I think, that, I think we can do that, actually. Yeah. I, think we can, I think we can very much do that. Can you pee on the bike? That's a useful skill. What? Before, before or? No, during. Well, you don't, during, okay. don't do it in training. It doesn't make you that popular in group rides. Um, in racing, definitely advantageous if you're, you're, you're looking for the fastest. Uh, hadn't even occurred to me that oh, you There's so that, much stuff I don't want to know. Oh, yeah, it's a long time, David, to go without... Um, to be fair, I've, I've peed well. I, when I was in the MDS, I didn't stop to pee. So, uh, yeah. No, you're, you're, you're skilled at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We've got a million questions. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd rather try and entice you into a, another conversation in a year or whenever it is that you're, you're potentially um, you know, kind enough to allow us to take more of your time, if, if that's okay. But um, well, if, if people want to... Um, can get involved in the the charities and the the projects you're involved with. Uh, what, what's the best way for them to do that? I'll get in touch. Well, get in touch with me. I'm I'm not especially prolific on social media. My my website was probably last updated about five years ago, which is chrissywellington.org. <laughs> People can write to me, um, um, chrissy at chrissywellington.org, um, and Twitter is chrissy smiles or Chrissy, Ma- Chrissy's Miles, but it is supposed to be Chrissy Smiles. Um, I'm, not, I'm not on Instagram. I'm just trying to kind of limit my social media. Um, and through and through my work with Park Run as well, I work work for Park Run, so um, they can also get in touch with me um, through those kind of channels as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and actually for being so open about everything. It's been amazing, really, really interesting. And um, and, and what are you like? What are your future targets and goals? Because you, you don't seem to be someone who'd be happy to just sit at home now. <laughs> oh, that's an. Uh, I think as you know, another podcast. So I definitely will have to come back. I think I'll invite myself back, but. Yeah, it was, you know, having retired in 2012, the, the type of challenges I wanted to do changed. I think initially I was quite scared to do these kind of challenges with kind of tangible metric focused goals. So like a marathon or something like that. So I just did loads of bonkers endurance kind of feats, like lots of multi-day sporties, multi-day hikes. Um, we ran up the three peaks and cycled between them and all those funny things. And then slowly I... I realized that I was missing that kind of goal and for my 40th birthday decided I want to run sub 50 at the London Marathon so I trained for that we had our baby and um, I had our daughter in 2015 as well which is a a whole new challenge um, so did the marathon and and then realized I wanted to step off the path and, and kind of segue into ultra running I think I realized that road road running wasn't as satisfying and gratifying as it once was that kind of metronomic style of running very split time based just wasn't 
lighting my fire anymore and I wanted something that was more of an adventure less tangible um and more of a challenge again you know I'm relatively strong endurance wise I'm not technically a proficient at all um on the trail so that wasn't that was a new challenge so more recently I'm, I'm just really loving trail running um um ultra racing um I did comrades um last year last was it last year what? yeah last year yeah last year was last year um and like I said I I loved the event the event is a phenomenal phenomenal event but I have to say that that the fact that it's on road is makes it less appealing. So I think now I'm going to focus a lot more on ultra races that are on trails. And then I'm not aspiring, you know, for to global success. There are other. You've said that before. I'm not <laughs> aspiring to anything. But I. Think <laughs> about Nepal. Come on, Chrissy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, none of this matters to me yeah i'm gonna beat you i'm gonna beat everyone <laughs> um yeah I, I'm, I'm just not but I, I there are other things in my life now that are are more more important um but i still want to race train and race as as hard as i can within the context of the life you know myself my husband our daughter lead right now and it's really exciting i really really enjoy it so personally it's um you know family first then trail ultra running um close second and then professionally my my work for park run enables me to kind of combine those passions of activity and and development and trying to get those that are um traditionally excluded from physical activity opportunities um involved in um walking jogging running volunteering um so that's something that i feel you know incredibly passionate about and again i'm incredibly privileged to be working for um for an organization that i believe is doing some great things so life life is good it's very different from from what it was you know 10 10 years ago but gratifying and satisfying in in a different way amazing well um well thank you again for coming on the podcast thanks for everything you do with park run because it is the the most powerful force in, in in the globe i think for um for running for, for, for positive positivity in running and uh we would absolutely love to have you back at any time that uh you can find time for us so um yeah in, enjoy the rest of the lockdown if you can and um and I, I guess we should yeah finish on on that note just by saying that at the, at the moment it, it feels slightly frivolous to be doing a, a podcast um when about running and ultra running when so few people can actually get out and and do what they they want to do and choices are so you know circumscribed and and um limited but you know hopefully this has provided a little dose of inspiration and motivation <laughs> at a, a really really challenging time so thanks to everyone that's listened thanks especially to those that are working as as key workers at this at this really difficult time and, and thanks to both of you for all you bring um to uh the sporting community it's great our absolute pleasure chrissy absolute and if you're ever yeah. in london do give us a shout you have to grab a beer 
Yeah, it might not be in the next few weeks. I'm still in. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and and, and, and and when can I pick up that bike? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be uh, winging its way, winging its way to you. <laughs> Thanks, Chrissy. Cheers. All the best. Cheers. Thank you. Oh, I, I don't know. If I can say this in case Camille's listening. She's got competition. Oh, I just say I think I think I'm in love. <laughs> I think I'm in love as well. <laughs> She's just so everything, everything you want in a person. Like, oh. great athlete with morality and humour and fun and everything. It's just, it's what the world needs. This, well, the thing is, okay, on the face of it, you think we've brought on someone who, uh, you know, who's an Ironman champion. But then when you get to the heart of it, she started out as a runner. And essentially, yeah. she got in front of everyone and said, this means nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's the biggest taunt, isn't it? <laughs> Not even giving a speech thanking your sponsors because uh, you're like, actually, none of this matters. What's but, it's, but the thing is, is it, it's, <laughs> it is true. It's yeah. absolutely true. It, it doesn't matter. And it must. And just that whole idea. And do you know what? I hadn't really looked at it from that perspective that, uh, you know, if you if you grow, if you're if you go into that system, and you are, you know, you're training to be a professional athlete from a very young age, then you're just focused on that. If you actually go out and have a career and you, you especially working in international development mm. and you gain a perspective on the world, you know, what matters and stuff. If you become a professional athlete at 30 and you've got, you know, all of that world experience, it must be really hard, hard to think, OK, this is this actually matters. But mm. actually having that aspect to it um, just add something completely different when you become it when you become a champion at it and so it it's it's just fascinating and that whole that in whole interview i think is is one of our best simply because not because we were great simply because that went into a direction i i kind of wasn't expecting it to go in yeah completely and i I, i'd listened to another podcast before we did this one with her and it was interesting how she's a real advocate of people if they can doing things like the the gap year and part of me has always been quite skeptical about a gap year um because i think most people when they do a gap year essentially go and get drunk in australia or going get drunk in thailand and yeah but actually you know she spent two years <laughs> when and you it... do a gap year. <laughs> <laughs> when you and your friends do a gap year yes that's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> want to get around to one that's what i'm doing <laughs> but um but yeah that's the thing i, I think to you, you how can sports people um particularly most sports where realistically you need to be almost on a road to being a pro from the from the early teenagers some even younger like how can you get a perspective on the world at yeah, all exactly, uh, exactly. And, and the thing is i suppose from a coach perspective you don't want as, as a coach you don't want people you just want to be focused on one thing you don't want to suddenly you know be going off on a tangent and asking questions does any of this really matter and you know this is it's a, that's the thing and yeah it's but but to have to have that additional perspective and that different route into it and also um not, not just that base of fitness but that base of uh, uh kind of mental strength and and bringing that psychology to it as well um it's it, it's just fascinating how that all co- comes together to to produce you know what what chrissy did and and i've forgotten and of course we we it's now 
common knowledge about the Oregon project. Uh, sorry, the uh, not the Oregon project, but um, what happened with Nike. But we 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 haven't ever touched on camp training and group training, and, and it's it's such an infrequent occurrence. In, I see. I didn't in, know that. I have no. I I uh, I'm un- completely unaware of as whether that's a normal thing or not. Mm. Um, but that 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 doesn't happen. Yeah, and it must be so hard to come to terms with, um, or, or to balance, you know, a period of your life where, you know, that is it is bullying. It is it, it is horrible, and must have been a real struggle to go into this, especially to having taken such a leap in your th- you know at the age of thirty to give up your job to go to Thailand to put all faith in the coach for then that to happen. But it must be quite hard to actually you know balance that with the fact that. It, it worked it might not have been it, it, it could have you know there would have been other routes to success as well potentially but the fact that does it justify it no but you can almost it, it's it's quite hard to actually um probably to process how you feel about that now i'd imagine yeah yeah absolutely um Oh, there's just so much to there's so much to th- <laughs> to go through what we've just talked about as well. Um, we didn't even get past her first win. I know exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she's got she's done so much. We haven't even got past. We haven't got past seven months. First, seven <laughs> I know. I was thinking when I was thinking, oh, what was the gap? Yeah, when I asked that question about that gap between, oh, when your coach said that you could, you know, you could use this as a platform going professional and then winning it. I mean, that is incredible. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I like the fact we've now had um, two Ironman, two Ironman people on in a row, one of which professional within <laughs> however long. Six, first six, Ironman uh, six months and then another one wins their first uh, world championship within seven months. Yeah, so maybe so, eight months. Is the eight months, yeah, that's it. <laughs> But this, uh, so, listeners, sorry we didn't ask any of your questions. There were loads, and actually, there were there were really, really good questions this time compared to most of the times we. Are. I think I suspect because a lot of the people asking the questions weren't necessarily typical do batters. The people who were kind of drawn to our posts because of uh, Chrissy. But yeah, we're we're hoping at some point we can do a, a follow up episode where we can. Well, I'd want to continue that story from from the first. Yeah, and and you know, actually go into the rest of her Ironman career, let alone then talking about ultra running and and, and the work she does with parkrun in itself is really really interesting, and we could talk about it for ages. Because um, yeah, I think, because I I just um, how people because the thing is that's it, isn't it? When you look at someone that's achieved as much as Chrissy, and you look down a list of all those achievements. And it it kind of just seems like a list, doesn't it? And you're like, oh, it's amazing, it's amazing. But to know how they, what changed and how you feel between those as well. And it's such, so, you know, interesting, isn't it? That it's not until she won her second world championship, then she kind of like all the, you know, because that expectation that, you know, that how, where did this like rookie come from um, until you win that second one? And you're like, just imagine that like level of expectation. Like I can, I can only feel it feel really accepted into this community until I've won my second world championship <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's interesting because there was there are certainly parallels with Camille um in yeah. that you know Camille came into trail running so ultra running and trail ultra trail yeah, fairly late on. yeah 
Yeah, in you know, probably at a similar age as well. Was it twenty nine, thirty? Um, maybe actually, maybe a bit older actually, but still, yeah, and felt like uh, felt like the outsider. I'd say this felt ostracised. Um, yeah, it's that's really interesting and it's it's strange that that people i, I part of me isn't do, do you sure think whether... Con, do you think connor tells tells camille that uh, <laughs> people don't like her and <laughs> yeah connor's just constantly uh shouting at her and... yeah, exactly locking her in a room telling people that she's not turning up at stuff giving her tickets and then <laughs> but the the whole like not telling anyone that someone's arriving at camp oh it's, can you it's it's so devious and it's, there's so much thought that goes into that um and also it does take a personality because i i just can't imagine ever being able to turn off my empathy and f- you'd feel so bad for someone and, and know the circumstances to be able to let that desire for competition and success to override it but then I suppose, you know, with all the stuff that's been coming out about um, the way, you know, uh, certain coaches are dealing with things, that it's it's kind of endemic, isn't it? Especially with the, mm. with the, you know, the British cycling team and everything that's happened with that. Um, you know, the, just like that kind of patterns of behaviour are, are, are normal in the way that things are coaching. Um, and it's just it's it, it's just a cultural thing, a cultural thing that's just gone down for for years and years, and though it's acceptable, um, it's strange though that it's because I I can understand it being a cultural thing within a sport, but the fact that it seems to be multiple sports that it, and, and I don't know whether it is necessarily culture or just personality types of, of kind of male coaches male, yeah. the type of people that are drawn yeah. into there is, high there is a common theme isn't there and it seems to be older males is the common theme the thing that connects all of them even within different sports but then you know yeah. they'll they'll have been coached a certain way and they'll have been coached and, and the people that coach them will have been coached a certain way so um yeah so i, I don't know you know who it, I suppose it's just it's just opening it up as much as possible, and mm. like like as he says, whistleblowers, um, and, and actually shining a light onto onto these practices. And I wonder actually if she'd have, if she, I wish I'd have asked her now, if she felt she should have blown a whistle. Not that you really could at those at that time, because I wouldn't have thought her group was high profile enough, or but whether she felt that she should have done, or if in high you know respect she would have done. Um, but then who, who who would you blow a whistle to? And you've really got to be in a high-profile group to be able to do that because at a lesser level, I, I just don't think people would listen or you'd have the platform to really be able to speak out. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm buzzing off that. Well, I, I think there's so much we can talk about, but actually... Um, it, it's it's been said best by by chrissy so should we should we leave it there yeah let's do it well do bad if you've enjoyed that episode um other episodes you'd recommend come over on we've we've got three of those that we've done um trying to think of any if you're iron man iron man related go redmond one um yeah that's again um again another different route into into iron man and triathlon 
very different route we've um if you were if you just only want to listen to iron man athletes we had john kelly on who is a at sometimes iron man athlete who was the only finisher not the only finisher the he was the the most recent finisher of the barclay marathons um and rumor has it finished again this year by going out and doing it by himself um, <laughs> which just blows my mind um wow uh, <sighs> Then any anything else, comrades would cut the time to Camille. Um, any other episodes you think would be good as a? Uh... It was most of the content was quite new, so I don't really know if if there's anything else um, that we can compare to this. No, no, I'm not sure. Yeah, um, but other great episodes that I've really enjoyed. Um, if you like kick-ass females, Wonder Marie Avery wow she's got eight percent vision she has undertook the barclay marathon she's also run a 350 mile um non-stop race unguided with eight percent vision absolutely incredible listen out to that one um yeah if you've liked this episode please do subscribe please leave a, a review on itunes or wherever you you get your podcast it makes a big difference in us being able to attract good guests um if you want to ask questions to chrissy even in the future we, we will be getting her back on hopefully get on instagram and put your questions under the posts but we also do generally put in advance who we're going to be interviewing so you can ask your questions directly to them and uh if you want us to interview anyone in particular get in the facebook group and tag us in a post and we'll go out and get them assuming that it's a, a good suggestion <laughs> yeah there's a, there's a caveat we've got to have <laughs> suggestions <laughs> any other anyone else anything else you'd recommend or want to uh, sign us off with Jamie? no i don't think so i just want to point out that this is if this is your first episode we very rarely talk about triathlons um <laughs> apart from either when we're berating them or it's talking about me having to run one um so 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 don't think you're going to get a big fill of triathlon talk on this podcast yeah if you're if, you, if you've got to this point and you're an an through and through triathlete or through and through iron man we should tell you now we hate you <laughs> you are not our people <laughs> i don't know if we covered this the you're our enemy podcast. i don't i don't know if this was because i don't know if it was we were recording when we were talking about this but um uh, something that Chrissy mentioned to to us, uh, and if this is in Nick, cut this out. But um, something Chrissy mentioned to us was that she actually listened to the podcast before before coming on it. And I said that must literally be the first person in two hundred and ten episodes <laughs> who has listened. See, so she actually had an idea, and the first thing she says was, "Don't be mean to Parkrun." <laughs> <laughs> we love Parkrun. It's just the officialdom, the officialdom of Parkrun, official- or anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, there's. It, we we jest of course we do uh we do put up with triathletes and ironmen um so you're you're as welcome as any as welcome as any so uh, we, we have some very famous triathletes in, in the group we've got Deepor, g law um other 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 triathletes like that that you can come and mingle with in the group um and do whatever you triathletes do and in less than uh, seven months time we'll also have triathlete ironman jd rainsford in the group so uh j ray then j ray <laughs> so thanks for listening guys we'll be back next week and uh take care of yourself bye 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 bye
Listen, give me one more try Cause a love like this Should I never ever die Come back Fuck you, buddy 